Welcome to the Uncredible Adventures podcast with me, your host, Cornelius. I'm really pleased to have you here. So a few months ago, my stepdad started to get this nasty red rash on the back of one of his hands. And it gradually started to spread and it it spread to his forearm and the underside of his forearm, at the crook of his elbows. Very sore red rash with flaky skin. And he's a little bit of a hypochondriac. And he became convinced that it was some kind of food allergy. And he saw a couple of people and they said, oh, yeah, you've got, you you know, you've got a food allergy here. So he started to experiment with food and he went on a pretty strict food elimination diet. So first of all, he stopped eating dairy and wheat. And then he stopped, I think, eating eggs and then and then peanuts, I think, and some fish and shellfish and various things that he he was very committed to cutting these foods out of his diet and he started to lose weight and get started getting very slim but he was absolutely committed because this rash was not going away if anything it was getting worse it got worse and worse and he but he doubled down and he eliminated more food he was really strict with it he he went from trying not to drink milk to absolutely avoiding it at all costs and checking labels and becoming someone that does all of these things and it was very difficult, but, you know, he'd suffer like a martyr and say, oh, don't worry about me. I, you know, I'm, I've got allergies. I can't eat or drink this. And then eventually, after a couple of months of him doing this and telling everyone about his allergies and being the number one topic of conversation about what he can't eat and what he can eat and all the rest of it, one of his closest friends developed a very similar rash on the back of his hand. And this friend's wife developed it at the same time within a couple of weeks and they went straight to the doctor and the doctor diagnosed scabies. So scabies is like a tiny little, you can't see it, a tiny little mite that burrows under your skin and uh, and causes intense skin irritation and, and all sorts of things. And it's spread through a physical contact from person to person. So they came back and said, oh, you know your rash we've we've caught it off you it's scabies you need to go to the doctor and get some cream so they got the cream and they cleared it up within a couple of days it was completely gone but through part embarrassment i think and part not wanting to admit that he'd had two months of really restrictive food eating and actually there was nothing that he was allergic to he's decided to cling on to it so now the rash has gone away because he got the cream although he didn't mention it we're not allowed to talk about it but he still is on this really restrictive food diet and doubling down so that he never has to admit that he had scabies and gave it to his friends it's a true story there's a reason i do this podcast anonymously the episode tonight is about bugs creepy crawlies and all things bugs it's an interesting one it's got quite a serious message at the end not as heavy as last week thank you to all of you that gave me positive feedback and spoke to me about the episode last week i think i touched a few people which means a hell of a lot to me back on form today i really needed that clear out last week i'd been struggling a bit and just being able to talk to you just knowing that you're there you're listening we're going through this together was really good so without further ado i'm going to lead you into this episode i haven't titled it yet when i'm recording this and i normally do i've realized i hadn't so it's going to be called creepy crawlies or bugs or something like that but this is uncredible adventures i am cornelius there are a lot of things that i don't understand and one of them is evolution i mean 
I've got a layman's understanding of it, a kind of working knowledge of the basics, but I just don't get it. The whole concept, the idea of it is too big for my brain to be able to process, too big for me to be able to comprehend. And I've got a friend who's really interested in evolution. He studied it. He is an expert in the subject. And quite often I have conversations with him and I try and pick his brains a bit. And what I find is that whenever I think I've wrapped my head around a concept or I can understand where he's coming from or a point he's making, I I do something stupid as simple as using the wrong type of language and just the type of language or the way that I try and phrase back to him the things he's telling him immediately lets him know and makes him hugely disappointed that I've just exposed that I absolutely do not understand what I'm talking about. So he'll talk to me about the world, the earth, billions of years ago when all there was was single-celled organisms. And this one single event where a single-celled amoeba engulfs a bacteria that has somehow mutated in a way that makes it sensitive to light or makes it able to harness power from light. And then instead of just simply breaking down and digesting this piece of bacteria it actually takes on some of the dna takes on some of the structure and takes on this special magic power that this bacteria had for photosynthesis essentially and you end up with some kind of spliced organism which is an amoeba that has a living and separate alien dna from a bacteria that it's somehow adopted into itself I I told you by the way that I don't understand this so if I'm doing if you do understand and I'm doing a really bad job of explaining it well forgive me but this one amoeba that has the power of photosynthesis becomes single ancestor for every single plant on the planet earth every plant that has ever lived and every plant that will ever live traces itself back all the way to this single fluke incident where this amoeba engulfed this bacteria and took on the power of photosynthesis and that changes the world and life on earth in ways that you can't even comprehend every single plant came from that and they flood the atmosphere with oxygen they change the entire environment the makeup of the world and that in turn leads all the way to animals which leads to humans ultimately And then I'll say something like, "Ah, so what happened was this amoeba realised that instead of digesting and breaking down this bacteria, it could actually borrow this part of the DNA sequencing or the RNA sequencing or whatever it was and adopt those powers and take them on itself. And he'll stop me and say, no, you're absolutely wrong. Evolution doesn't happen through decisions. No one decided that's what was meant to happen this amoeba didn't choose to do that it was a mutation it was a fluke incident it was a one in a billion chance that just happened same as every single mutation and development and step along the way in billions of billions of years of evolution that leads to the really sophisticated organisms and the simple organisms that we have living on earth today it's brutal and it's cold no one makes these choices there's no plan you have mutations that occur and then the organism that's mutated either survives or it doesn't 
And the only way you can possibly even begin to fathom, and and I still can't, but the only possible way to start to fathom is to realise that this all happens over an almost infinite amount of time, or it's long enough that it might as well be infinite. We're talking about billions of years, which which is almost impossible to comprehend for a species that lives for, you know, if you're doing well for 80 to 100 years, uh, 1 billion years, even 100,000 years is beyond comprehension, but billions of years becomes almost nonsensical. I've been reading The Rhythm of War by Brandon Sanderson. I'm sure I've mentioned it on a couple of the podcasts before, book four I think in the series and a pretty slow one one that I found pretty difficult at first I'm I'm now so close to the end I'm in sort of the last 10% of the book that tiny slither of book and everything's happening it's all going off and the book's become really amazing but one of the things that struck me and one of the thought points that really stood out to me is that some of the characters in this are immortal and one of the immortal characters says something haven't got it in front of me but something akin to humans with our our tiny little short lives and this little slither of time we have on earth we think that rocks are solid and stable and unmoving we think that rocks are totally absolutely static things but through the eyes of someone who's immortal through the eyes of someone who will live forever and and looks in long enough time scales then they realize that rocks are constantly moving shifting evolving growing and shrinking and moving about again it it somehow makes sense to me but it's so far beyond what I can really picture so definitely time is a factor I don't understand time scales and I don't understand that things can happen without there being intent but the thing that really annoys him and I can't help myself but do it is that I'll say something similar to I'll compare things and say that something is more evolved than something else. So I say that an an earthworm is less evolved than a human. You know, a human is a better example of evolution. Or even that a, a tree is more evolved than a piece of algae that's floating around in a river somewhere. And that's where he'll really stop me and say, no, that is not how evolution works. You don't have more evolved. You're, you're thinking again about there being a plan. You're thinking about there being a goal. If something is alive today and has the ability or has the possibility of reproducing, then it is perfectly evolved. It's it's entirely evolved exactly to where it needs to be. Because the only goal, the only thing that evolution does is to make a species survive, make an organism able to replicate. And so the bacteria that I'm trying to snuff out by spraying deodorant under my arms is just as evolved as I am. And I've tried to word my argument against that in so many different ways that I have to concede that someone who knows what they're talking about more than I do is probably right. And there probably is no such thing as something being more evolved. If it's alive right now, if it's here right now, it's perfectly evolved. But that doesn't stop me thinking about some creatures and some of the incredible things that just boggle your brain how they happen. A butterfly. You imagine the process of evolution that that goes to create a single butterfly. What what changes and mutations and things must have happened to get a butterfly to the point where it is. All the way back from this single-celled amoeba 
eating something and gaining the power of photosynthesis that then becomes the ancestor of every plant on earth and plants then become they move on to land and they become flowers and they start becoming flowering things and then that oxygen they produce from the plants and the fact they have flowers gives food and gives rise to insects and and creatures and things that can climb on it and then these these bugs these creatures learn how to fly again i'm using the wrong language if i said to him learn how to fly say no no one learned how to fly (laughs) there was a series of progressive mutations and trial and error and billions and billions and billions of different options that eventually led to the point where some creatures are able to fly and then these flying bugs they get thicker heavier wings and they become moths moths that that fly at night and then bats come along with their sonar and the fact they don't need the light to be able to hunt these insects and they start eating the moths so some of them move to to the daytime and start trying to survive and and feed and move about in the daytime And now that they're operating in the daytime, some mutations happen to do with colouring and colouring the wings that lead to certain evolutionary advantages that give you butterflies. I mean, wow. And of course, this huge missing didn't make any sense to me at all about the steps between something developing a little bit of pigment in its wings and coming all the way to a butterfly that has big eyes painted on its wings that look like a predator, look like a snake, or or even some butterflies have wings that that really, really look like snakes to scare off predators, to scare off birds, stop them getting eaten. Or others have bright colours that warn that they're poisonous, and then others have bright colours that mimic the ones that are poisonous, even though they don't have to go to the trouble of making any poison themselves. And some of them develop colours that make them camouflaged. And others, they just have these bright colours for, for sexual selection, to show off, to look good, to attract a mate. Or even just having these bright and clearly defined colours to let other butterflies know who's the right species, who are the people they should be looking for to try and mate. It is absolutely incredible and mind-blowing. But perhaps the most stunning part of it is this idea of metamorphosis. The idea that you start with an egg and then the egg hatches and it's a caterpillar, a squishy worm-type bug that climbs around on plants and eats the leaves and eats its way through the cheese and the sausages and the lollipop and everything that the hungry caterpillar eats and gets itself fat and big. And then it makes a silk cocoon around itself And inside that silk cocoon, it goes through some kind of change and it comes out as a butterfly. And I always thought, and I still, I still do kind of think it, even though I know the truth, but I always thought that what happens essentially, because a a butterfly looks a bit like a caterpillar with the wings stuck on. So I thought essentially a caterpillar goes in and it might shrink a bit and it kind of changes colour, it goes from green to, to black or a darker colour, but basically what it's doing in there is growing these massive wings and then it eats its way out. And I've learned that that's not true at all. What happens is something even more complex and crazy and unexplained and indeed an area of very live debate amongst scientists and people that know about these things today. So what you have to understand about what's going on inside a cocoon, so when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, 
it doesn't sort of go to sleep and then grow wings or anything like that. It dies. So almost the entire organism dies completely and it rots and it breaks down and it goes into some kind of mushy soup to the point that there's there's literally maybe just a handful, just a couple of cells in there left that then use this soupy mush and all the nutrients that were the butterfly's were the caterpillar's body to build an entirely different creature from the ground up right from the the very start and i was reading about a fairly controversial but in some places accepted and and certainly not entirely discredited theory by a scientist called bernd heinrich the first thing stunned me when I looked at this is that Bert Heydrich is still alive we're not talking about a theory from the 40s or the 50s or even the 60s we're talking about someone who uh, a current live theory that's not been settled that is still open for debate although it's very controversial and the crux of his argument the crux of what he explains is that the caterpillar and the butterfly are two entirely separate organisms the butterfly does not grow from the caterpillar or more to point the caterpillar does not become the butterfly they are two completely separate organisms the only thing they have in common is that the butterfly's body is built from the mush and the nutrients that come from the decomposing and dead body of the caterpillar i'm going to quote a little bit of what he says here says a death-like intermission inside these caterpillars shrink They shed their skin, their organs dissolve. Their insides turn to mush and most of their cells die. But lurking in the goo are just a few cells, the so-called adult or imaginal cells, that at this moment jump into action. They reorganise all of the free-floating proteins and other nutrients and turn what was once the caterpillar into, and here comes the resurrection, a moth, a death and a resurrection so basically what he's saying is that this caterpillar has two sets of dna and the caterpillar dna gets turned off when the caterpillar dies and then the butterfly dna gets turned on and the butterfly dna codes to to rebuild an entirely new creature quoting again here it says there are indeed two very different sets of genetic instructions at work There is a switch turning the caterpillar off and turning the butterfly on. And that means one of the body dies and new life is resurrected. New life. Now, it's not controversial that that is what happens. We know very well now that's exactly what happens, that the caterpillar dies and goes down into mush. But what's controversial is that Bert Heydrich, the way he says this has happened and how it's come about essentially is it a little bit like earlier we talked about this amoeba eating this bacteria that has some photosynthetic properties and somehow the dna survives from that bacteria and becomes a separate almost a separate organism within the amoeba he reckons in 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 basic terms that at some point a butterfly or something that looked like a butterfly had sex with something that looks like a caterpillar 
can only assume the butterfly was going through a low point in its life and was was not too choosy. I think that you know the caterpillar. Yeah, I can absolutely get it. Beautiful butterfly comes with bright coloured wings. You're going to go for it. But I don't know what the cat what the what the butterfly was thinking. But but essentially, yeah. So a butterfly and a caterpillar have sex, and then the caterpillar lays eggs, and those eggs that the, the offspring contain two sets of dueling dna for two completely different animals they're not mixed at all and the deal they they strike the kind of symbiotic relationship they have is that the caterpillar lives a great life it eats its food it has fun it has a great time it lives fine on the condition that and it carries the dna and the only condition is that when it dies instead of just dropping on the floor and getting eaten by a bird or rotting down to mush it creates this chrysalis so that it can all the body that it's formed it, it puts it into this little pot which then makes it available to the dna for the butterfly which comes alive and uses that as like the yolk of the egg to build itself it's almost like if you imagine if you were to plant a plant an acorn on your grave and as the tree grows it, it your body decomposes and you and the tree uses the nutrients from your body to build and and become part of the tree and somehow you exist and you grow in that tree it's the circle of life that they talk about on the lion king that still this still seems like a bit of a rough deal for the animals that get eaten but effectively the argument in the lion king was oh we we eat the antelope but when we die our bodies become grass and then the antelope eat the grass I know we, you don't really, uh, certainly I don't think about butterflies very much generally in my day-to-day life. We did a lot of it at primary school and we learnt about metamorphosis and the chrysalis and the cycles and things like that. And then you tend not to think about it much anymore until suddenly you're a 40-year-old band with a podcast thinking about bugs and insects and making an episode. This episode isn't about evolution, it's about bugs. And it got me thinking, what do I know about bugs? And it made me think about butterflies and suddenly i've realized there is so much i don't understand so many wonders for this world out there to be discovered if you just open your eyes and look around and stop taking things for granted stop thinking you know about everything and look again look a little bit closer about the everyday things that you see around you and really examining them i used to love bugs really love them i used to love all animals when i was growing up my house, my friends used to say my house was like a zoo. I had a very indulgent mum. She used to like animals as well. And she really indulged me. And she'd go along with a lot of my crazy plans to acquire and keep and have various pets and various animals. Um, and one of the bugs and insects are actually, I've got quite a, quite a lot of stories and memories of having various bugs and insects. Very, very early memory. I remember me and my sister, we had, it was a big field at the back of our house and we used to get a shoebox and use a pencil to poke a load of air holes in the top of a shoebox and you could go in this field and there'd be so many butterflies I, I don't remember how we used to catch them but it wasn't very difficult I think we literally there were so many that you could just go along and catch them in your hands so we'd catch 10 of them or 20 of them and put them in the shoebox and keep them in the shoebox for the afternoon which I mean looking back now I think that was terrible I don't think butterflies last very long and to be trapped in a black shoebox is probably um, some kind of ecological terrorism we did. But yeah, that was a very early memory. I remember at school, primary school, and 
in the infants, are very, very young, seven, six, seven years old, perhaps. We we had a bit of a craze where we used to get Tic Tac boxes, little clear plastic Tic Tac boxes with the hinge lids. We used to paint on them or draw on them with like a Sharpie pen, so we'd put like black diagonal lines across them, like warning lines, and we'd catch wasps. You'd catch a wasp and you'd have it in a Tic Tac box. We used to carry them round with us like it was some kind of weapon that you got a got a wasp in a Tic Tac box. It's a very hazy memory, but I'm sure that's what we used to do. It just sounds it sounds completely wrong, but yeah, we did. I also at one point when I had a friend when this when we were quite a bit older, but I had a friend and we used to every Saturday we'd cycle to place called Cruise Hill near Enfield which has a lot of garden centres and places that sell reptiles and fish and things like that and I bought a box of locusts once about 20 locusts in a little box that were meant to be food for something bigger I think but I brought them home and put them had them in a tank in my room these sort of black and black and yellow striped locusts in a, a little tank brilliant pets really really interesting I think the, the most amazing insect I ever owned, though, was one, when I was in secondary school, one of the kids, his dad had access to Malaysian hissing cockroaches. Now, I don't know what the story was. I mean, at the time, I'm sure he, these were, they were from some kind of lab. They were meant for testing, and, and he was responsible for breeding them, or I don't know exactly what it was. But anyway, for £2, he'd sell you a, a Malaysian hissing cockroach hello by the way to i've got one listener in malaysia who's listened based on the figures i've got listened to just about every episode so hello thank you very much for tuning in unless you're someone listening through a vpn nevertheless hello welcome thank you for listening through a vpn to malaysia i hope i get this right i hope they are malaysian i might even be getting this wrong but a malaysian hissing cockroach is a stunning beast so it's big about the size of a packet of cigarettes big brown and black glossy insect with a broad rimmed sort of almost like a tortoise shell shell across the back and you turned it over and have all these like you'd have its little face and its squirming legs kicking about and the most terrifying thing is that you probably guessed from the name but if you disturbed it if you tried to touch it or tried to pick it up it would hiss it's really loud scary hissing noise which was incredible but really disconcerting and they're entirely harmless but we never ever felt entirely comfortable with this thing just the the threat and the scare of this huge insect that would kind of curl its tail up and hiss at you i remember one day it escaped it it got out the little tank i had it in i didn't see it for a few days and one morning while i was still in bed and mum was going out to work she found it in her shoe and i only got the full story later but yeah she was getting ready for work getting ready to go out the door and she put her foot in the shoe and felt this this icing cockroach which must have been absolutely terrifying i remember she all i knew is that i woke up and it, she'd put it i had a bird in a cage i had a, a bird uh, amazing i'll tell a story about that one day it laid eggs just on the floor of the cage and hatched them we had two budgies you probably guess um yeah she put it on the top of the cage of the budgies kind of a bit of a threat like maybe the budgie will peck it and kill it it didn't it just reminded me as i'm as i'm recording this and i didn't plan to tell this story but there was a i think my sister a mouse got into one of her welly boots once and obviously climbed in and couldn't get out and she only realized when she put her foot in she didn't squash it but she 
uh, can you imagine how horrible that would be putting your foot down into a welly boot and then feeling some little furry animal suddenly squealing around at her foot i I don't i think for years she was always funny about welly boots and putting them on i can't say i blame her but of course only a fraction of the insects that come into your life are planned or pets you're more likely to encounter an insect that's a wild animal and consider it a pest i talked last week about when i went through a divorce and i ended up living in a flat and had my boys coming to stay periodically so every other weekend and I'd have them a few nights through the week and I remember one of the very first weekends they came to stay and I was really putting a brave face on and and trying my best to be a normal functioning happy human being that was living this new life with my children but it was really tough and they arrived this weekend with a sickness bug a horrible horrible sickness bug the type that was making them vomit you know every 10 minutes so luckily I didn't catch it but I just resigned myself to the fact that we had a weekend one of the first weekends in this flat with me running around with sick bowls and little pots and things like that and running them in and out of the toilet and nursing them and during that weekend I realized that they were scratching their heads a lot and so I got the comb and had a look and sure enough found that they had head lice so both of them were infested with head lice which has got me scratching myself now I don't think you can think about head lice without suddenly thinking about what it's like to have little creatures crawling around on your scalp and if you're anything like me probably where you're listening now it's made you suddenly become aware of little itches and scratches in your body but yeah so I had to take them had to go out single parent had to go out to get some head lice treatment and I had to take the kids with me and I remember going to the boots with each of them holding like a little plastic tub or something to be sick in if they needed to and going into boots and there was a massive queue and one of them started being sick and filled this tub and then the other one said like he was feeling you ill and we and I managed to buy this headlight stuff but that was just yeah I think the the icing on the cake of what was already a pretty tough situation was trying to drag two kids who were carrying little pots of vomit around a shop to buy head lice treatment i they they're pretty good in a pharmacy like that they tend not to judge you but i do wonder on that day for anyone looking in must have wondered what on earth i was doing wrong with these poor kids i've also got one of my most significant injuries that i've ever suffered was due or caused by a bug inadvertently the bug wasn't at fault I was but when I was about eight or nine we went on a narrowboat holiday so there's lots of canals around the UK and various places you can rent a narrowboat which is a bit got a big diesel engine chugs along at five miles an hour and you spend half a week sailing or, or, or chugging this thing up the canal mooring up overnight at the edge of the canal seeing a bit of the English countryside it's really it's really just a lovely holiday I, I need to have a look and see if they if you can still do that I guess you can probably hideously expensive now I think back then it was a fairly cheap choice for a holiday one afternoon while we were on this boat I was in there was sort of a, a bunk that was across the front bow and I was sitting up on the top bunk and there was this fly and I was convinced it was a horse fly I don't know whether it was I'm not even sure at age I knew what a horse fly was other than I knew that horsefly could bite you and it was something you didn't want and I was sure this thing was a horsefly so I was sitting up on the top bunk 
and had a rolled up magazine or something I thought I'm going to swat this fly I'm going to squash it against the window and I took a swing at it and I missed and it flew towards me and in my blind panic I jumped backwards and I jumped into thin air because I was sitting on the edge of this top bunk and I fell all the way from the top bunk down to the floor and because it was such a small little room directly behind where I fell were three steps up into the main cabin of the boat and each of them had like a wicked metal strip of metal across the corner of them to give them a bit of grip and stop them wearing down and I landed straight from the top bunk straight down on the back of my head against this metal ridge and it split open the back of my skull about an inch and a half long in a cut and now I never saw it but all I remember at that moment was just I, I don't even remember the pain I just remember the shock that I took a, a, a breathed out I screamed and I couldn't breathe in and I jumped up and I went running into the boat and it probably was only for a few seconds but it felt like a very very long time that I couldn't breathe in and I was running around in blind panic trying to breathe again trying to get my breath back I think maybe I'd been winded from the fall as well as the shock but it was absolutely terrifying and eventually my dad managed to grab hold of me because I was going mad and realized that I had blood flowing out of the back of my head and they told me it looked like it was about the size of an egg because it split in a horizontal line and then opened up where the scalp or whatever it was was tight and it was like a big egg-shaped split in my head the size and shape of an egg where you could actually see my skull on the other side with blood pouring out so they got some tea towels I think and held it against the back of my head and managed to stop the bleeding but this was seven eight o'clock at night on a canal on a narrow boat which you're not allowed to drive them at night but even if you can they they go at like three or four miles an hour they're very very slow and we were miles and miles from anywhere on a canal in the middle of of the darkness there's no such thing as mobile phones or anything back then and my parents had to make the hard choice I think working out that we were we were several several miles from the nearest civilization and it was getting late at night they managed to stop the the bleeding and I, I vividly remember that night I slept in a bed next to my dad and he held his arm out so that I could lie on my back with the very top of my head resting against his arm which sort of held this big gaping hole in the back of my head up off the bed and we slept a very uncomfortable night and then in the morning I think we drove drove the boat or chugged the boat for a couple of hours down the canal until dad could see a few signs of life and I went with him and we walked into the town it was a Sunday morning and we went into this really quaint little tiny English village in the middle of nowhere I think we found a paper shop was open the guy was was there sending the paper boys out and dad sort of walked up to him and said look I got my boy here he's got his head split open we're we're stuck we're in the middle of nowhere and he said oh you want to you know old you want to talk to old Tim he's the doctor so he gave the address of the local doc we walked up we went to this doctor's house and this this old gent opened the door and he was really nice and he had a look and he said oh he said that's a he said that's a doozy wow he said yep you're gonna need definitely gonna need that stitching up and he said come to the uh, come to the surgery so he opened up the surgery for us on a on a Sunday morning 
and he sat us down and I remember he gave me the choice he said look we need to we need to stick this closed you're going to be all right but it needs to be it's not going to heal itself it needs to be closed and he said you've got two options you can either have a needle and thread but you'd have to have an injection first a couple of injections first to numb it and then a needle and thread and it will heal up really nice and neatly and then in a, a week or two's time you can go to your doctor to have the stitches out or I can do some steri strips I can sort of tape it shut but if we're going to do that one I need to shave the back of your head all around it and I'm going to need to paint you with a sort of yellow disinfectant I guess it was so he said you're you're going to be walking around with a shaved hole in the back of your head painted yellow now thinking about that all these years later actually sounds quite cool but there was a, a certain weight of pressure you know to be a man and all oh, have the you know have the stitches come on do it properly so i made a free choice i think but what i thought was the correct choice i said oh i'll have the stitches and i remember the doctor said okay i'll tell you what i'll go and get my wife she's also a doctor but she's better than so she's better at sewing than me I'm straying off insects slightly here into arachnids, I realise. But it's worth noting that the, the my studio, I call it a studio, I've got a, effectively on the side of the house, there was a lean-to, so it's three brick walls with a door at the end. And it used to have a corrugated iron roof, or I think it's possibly asbestos roof. And when we moved into the house, the roof was completely collapsed, and it just has a dirt floor, and it was it was completely overgrown with ivy. But at the start of lockdown, I needed an office. I needed somewhere to work from home. So I've done a bit of DIY in here. I've put a floor in and I bought a huge single piece UPVC roof that I've put on and, and put a few tiles and things up on the wall. But the one thing that I've not managed to eliminate and I haven't made a huge effort to, but it's got a serious infestation of false widow spiders. Now, hello again to my listeners in Malaysia and there's quite a few listeners in Australia and various places like that and you're probably going to laugh but in the UK we have very very few venomous animals at all but one of them which is pretty rare still is the false widow spider it takes its name after the black widow spider of course looks very very similar huge abdomen huge round back of the the animal and long legs and it's got big fangs you can see these fangs they look absolutely huge and they live in little nooks and crannies and holes and gaps so i've got a there's i can see one of their nests right now so there's a, a hole in the wall that has been drilled at some point and it's left you know about the thickness of a pencil a little hole and you what you have from that is just you have web coming out all around it and down in that hole somewhere is one false widow spider which kind of sits there and i think it waits for a bug or a fly or something to crawl past and it will come flying out and grab it now i've got quite used to them now i'm sure it'd be a nightmare for some people maybe you're having heebie-jeebies just thinking about it now but i i've got quite used to them i got bitten by one once and it was it was like a bee sting so it, it hurt a lot when it bit me on my chest and the area sort of really swelled up and it stung for a few hours after but that's the worst of it it's not gonna kill you luckily unless you're very unlucky or very allergic but yeah they're they're generally harmless but quite creepy i show them to people when they come round. i don't, it would only take me a couple of seconds to 
to find one in this office. They're, they're virtually everywhere. And one final nasty insect story. I used to have a dog. I don't want to say too much about him because that's another bit like last week where I opened my heart and soul. One day I'm going to talk about my dog, my ex-dog, on this podcast. He was the most wonderful boy ever. But I was taking him for a walk once, I remember, in a local country park. And we were walking, walking up past a river and there was sort of a rickety old fence that separated the path from the river. And on the underside of one of the struts of the fence was a little wasp's nest. And I don't know what he was thinking, but he ran straight up to it and bit the thing in half, just bit a huge chunk out of it. And this huge cloud of wasps came flying out, furious wasps came flying. And they all started landing on him. And I don't know, most of them were landing on his back. He was a German shepherd. He had a thick double coat. So they were all over his back, which they couldn't, they couldn't get to him. They couldn't sting him clearly. And I, I guess maybe some of them, you know, on parts of his ears and his head, he didn't seem to be that bothered by them. But he was absolutely covered in wasps. And then, of course, what he did, he was a very well-trained dog. He ran back to me. And he started running towards me. I could see what was happening and I could see that he was covered in wasps. So I started running the other direction, which made him even more determined to get close to me. So I was running at absolute full pelt, trying to get away from him and this cloud of wasps that he was bringing. And he was making it his job to run directly beside me, just how I trained him to do. (laughs) I got stung five times, three times on the back of my right leg and twice on the back of my neck before we eventually ran far enough that the the wasp started to to buzz off and and go in various directions but yeah that was he got me in trouble that day and i heard something on the radio the other day they were saying that this year apparently is going to be there's going to be a lot of wasps in the uk this year because we didn't have a late frost and what happens is that the i want to say queen wasps again i don't know what i'm talking about really but the 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 wasps that found wasp colonies they all fly out um late in the winter and they go and find little cracks and crevices and places to hide which they then start to build nests and they start to lay eggs and 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 that will become a hive full of wasps but because we haven't had a late frost they say a lot more of them will have survived this year than do normally so there's going to be a very very high percentage of wasps this year and i heard that and it made me think that may well be true, but I can't remember, apart from apart from the dog biting off that wasp nest years ago, I can't remember being that bothered by wasps in a very long time. So we spend so much of the summer in the garden, we have picnics, we have barbecues, we have drinks, we sit outside, and throughout, it feels like throughout my childhood, you couldn't have a picnic without the wasps descending. Wherever you went, as soon as you got the picnic out, wasps would arrive. And we, we spent our life trying to shoo away wasps and trying to keep wasps off our food and worrying about insects and flies and bugs and things like that. And it really struck me. I suddenly thought, that just doesn't happen here. We don't get bothered really by bugs at all. Now, possibly that's because we've got <laughs> several hundred false widow spiders that that protect the house and protect the garden for me but i looked it up i said you know i looked up i thought are there am i just imagining it that we used to be plagued by insects and bugs when i was a kid and we're not now and what's more scary than being invaded by wasps and stung by insects is the truth of the matter 
in that there is a catastrophic collapse of flying insect populations in the UK over the last 20 years. And I read this statistic to my wife a few weeks ago and she can't stop thinking about it. It's really creeped her out and I'm going to creep you out with it now. So they did a, they did a study. So two conservation charities, one called Bug Life and one called the Kent Wildlife Trust. And they conduct the same study, or they have conducted the same study for every couple of years, for, for a few decades now. And it's really, really simple. They, they get volunteers. And what they ask you to do is, before you go on a drive in the spring or the summer, you clean off your number plate on the front of your car. And then you, you drive where you're going. And when you get to the other end, you count how many bugs are splatted against it. And you log the data with them to let them know where you drived, what the route was, and how many bugs were splatted against a, a certain area. So it's a very precise area of your number plate that you count against. It's really, really simple science. And there's probably a few holes, but it, it's pretty good indication. And all they do is to compare all the different journeys and all the different bug numbers year on year from a pretty big sample size they get. And... The results are really quite stark, and this is what I told my wife. In the UK, overall, there has been a 60% decrease in the numbers of flying insects in the last 20 years. In the south of the UK, it's even more pronounced with it somewhere between 65 and 70% decrease in the numbers of flying bugs. There's another study that was published in 2019, much more broader study that they took thousands and thousands of volunteers to go out and examine areas of the countryside and a bit more I want to say more scientific perhaps not more scientific than the number plate test I think that's a great little scientific thing but certainly more involved but that has concluded that they it suggests that invertebrates are declining by at least 2.5 percent every single year now whichever way you cut it that is bad news so the the upside is you're gonna get bothered by bugs less when you have a picnic you're gonna get bitten by mosquitoes less often you're gonna have less wasps invading you but the bigger picture the undeniable and the terrifying truth is that we are watching extinction happen in real time a 65 percent reduction in the number of flying insects in 20 years and bugs are not only an indicator of the health of our planet, but they're also a really important part of the food chain and the ecosystem. So bugs do really important things. It's scary in itself, even if they did nothing for us. Just the fact that the diversity and the species and the amount of life that this country, this planet supports is declining that rapidly. That's even before you consider that the bugs are pollinators. It's not just bees that pollinate of the food that we eat or the wildflowers and the plants that suck co2 out of the atmosphere and give us oxygen that's every bug pretty much every bug has a part to play in pollination and in helping plants grow it's a real like going back to this evolutionary piece plants grew and then symbiotically developed with insects to, to depend on each other you can't have plants without insects and you can't have insects without plants they're also right right near the bottom of the food chain for loads of animals but birds in particular wild birds depend on bug life 
to survive to eat that's how they survive so it's not just the bugs that are collapsing but it also is going to have a knock-on effect on the birds that eat the bugs and the other animals that depend on the birds the whole ecosystem starts to fall apart now there's loads of different reasons it's, 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 there's no one thing you can put your finger on and say that's what we need to stop doing but some of the major things that cause this pesticides is a huge one the, the widespread use of pesticides the breakdown of natural habitats and as we build on more and more of our land and turn more land over to food production then the the natural grasslands and the uh, the 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 natural native species of plants and, and areas that diverse become more fragmented and smaller and there's less place for these bugs to to breed and grow and hide climate change has something to do with it the fact that i think scotland's had a 24 percent reduction in bugs and the south of the uk has had a 64 percent is all to do with the climate change and how it's heating up and how the hotter weather means that a lot of these bugs just can't survive or, or can't thrive Air pollution is another one. Bugs are, are, you know, they're tiny little insects that suffer greatly from air pollution. And then there's all the man-made things, the way that we, we live now. So AstroTurf lawns, they're getting very trendy. People are taking lawns out of their house and replacing them with dead plastic AstroTurf, which just destroys any chance of biodiversity or any life. Now there's millions of different or thousands of different types of flying bugs, but what does it mean for the butterflies? Because I talked earlier about how my sister and I used to be able to go out and just grab handfuls of butterflies and keep them in boxes, probably doing our piece there for the, the decline of the species. But they used to be that numerous. I can't remember the last time I saw a butterfly. And certainly since I started thinking about this episode, I've been looking for them. I've been looking. I've got a great garden. It's got loads of plants in it. And I've been looking for butterflies. I have not seen one in the last four or five weeks. And I grew up on the outskirts of London. And I now live in the middle of the countryside. If anything, there should be more natural wildlife and more species diversity where I am now. And I've found a publication from an organisation called Butterfly Conservation. It was published in 2015. So we've had seven years since this was published and hopefully presumably there's another one coming out soon although i'm not sure we'd want to read it but it's called the state of uk's butterflies 2015 i, I recommend if, if you're in any way interested in what i'm talking about google that and download this pdf it's really interesting now i'll read you a little bit of the executive summary here so it says world-class citizen science projects provide a comprehensive and statistically robust evidence base to inform this assessment of the state of the uk's butterflies Butterfly populations are monitored annually by volunteers at over 2,000 locations and tens of thousands of people have contributed almost 3 million butterfly distribution records over the past five years from all corners of the UK. And what are the headlines? Have a guess. Is it good news for butterflies? New analysis confirms significant declines of UK butterflies since 1976. Multi-species indicators show that both habitat specialist butterflies and wider countryside species decrease significantly in abundance and in occurrence. Indeed, a number of wider countryside species now rank among the most severely declining UK butterflies, which is a cause of grave concern. 
the UK Butterfly Monitoring Scheme results show that 57% of individual species had decreased in abundance since 1976. Although not all of these trends are statistically significant, among the 33 species with statistically significant long-term trends, 61% decreased over the period. Overall, 76% of the UK's resident and regular migrant butterfly species declined in either abundance or occurrence, or both, over the last four decades. We should all be very alarmed. I'm going to loop this back. This isn't a show about evolution. This is about insects. But I started at the beginning of this miracle of evolution. And the fact that I can't get my head around the time scales. We're talking billions and billions of years to get to the point we are now where we have the species and the evolutionary factors and butterflies have specialised and we get to where we are. And then within our lifetime... Within the last 20 years, you see a 60% reduction in the volume of flying insects in the UK. That is not sustainable. Something that took billions of years to come about, billions of years to build, is being destroyed in the matter of decades. I don't have the answers. And in truth, I'm part of the problem. I drive a car, I want cheap food, I... I've got children that are going to need places to live. I'm part of the human race that's doing this. But we can't turn a blind eye to it. A lot of these problems are big, global problems. It's going to take collaboration and joint efforts and, and worldwide efforts to try and solve. But there are some things you can do. So I started it even without thinking about this i didn't know any of these statistics a couple of years ago i drove i was driving through a little village a couple of years ago and i saw a sign this was in october or something it was in the winter but there was a tatty old sign hanging off the edge of a fence that just said no mo may on it and i didn't look it up at the time i didn't try to learn what that was but it just struck me that what a nice idea you know what what would happen if you didn't mow your lawn for the month of may so two years ago, I've got quite a big side garden. I've got the luxury of that. Again, all these solutions, you know, not everyone has the same power to, to, to impact or to help these type of things. If you have got a garden, you should be using it. Don't be putting AstroTurf down. But I've got a, I've got a strip. It's about two metres wide and about four metres long that from the beginning of May every year, I don't mow it. And it is absolutely spectacular. If I go out there now, it's got all sorts of different flowers in it. I can't believe the, the diversity that is just in my lawn, which normally I cut really low all year round, and it just looks like a grass lawn. When it grows, it's got these huge, like, dog daisies in there. It's got purple flowers that come up. It's got big yellow ones. It has about nine or ten different types of grass that you can tell from the seeds got beautiful leafy things it's a real feature in my garden it's in a part where everyone that walk past can see it and people comment on how beautiful it is it's a real feature now i don't think that's not going to reverse this decline in insects it's, it's at best it's a sticking plaster or something to make me feel better but at least it's something it's something practical that i do so no mow may and let it bloom june that's my commitment. I've got an area of my garden that I don't mow 
through either of those periods I let the plants grow I let there be a bit of food a bit of habitat a bit of shelter for these struggling native species I'm also a bit lax with the rest of the lawn so I don't mow it like I used to I let it grow a bit more shaggy I give a bit more back to the plant and I, and I plant plenty of flowers and things for for bees and other insects I'm going to build some insect shelters some simple bits of wood and things like that does all of that make a difference <sighs> In the face, I think, of 60% reduction in flying insects in the last 20 years, I think it's, it's way too little, it's way too late, it's a pretty pathetic effort, but it's something. So what am I doing instead? Well, I don't know what I can do. I don't have the answers. I hope someone does. I hope we can come to a solution. But it all has to start by us recognising the problem, by talking about it, by facing up to it and realising that something's going to have to change. So that's what this podcast is don't like to preach to you too much certainly not talking from an ivory tower here i'm part of the problem i'm just as lost as anyone else i'm doing less than other people but i am making a commitment here to say look my small audience the the little soapbox that i've got the platform i've got i'm using it let's talk about this talk to people look up these studies the the state of british butterflies studies around insect populations around the world and have the conversation when you're talking to people tell them that statistic i told it to my wife 60 percent reduction in flying insects in the uk over the last 20 years and she start can't stop thinking about it can't stop worrying about it which i don't want everyone to panic and worry but we need to talk about these things so this is my ask from you if you're interested look into it you know this may be the way that you change the world maybe you're the person that manages to get us to see sense or comes up with something that that solves some of these problems but the very least you can try and lessen yourself as part of the problem by talking about it give that statistic to someone look up look up the research read about it use whatever platform you've got whatever conversations you have to talk about this extinction event that we're living through that we're watching billions and billions of years of evolution that like i said that got us from butterflies all the way from that first amoeba that ate a bacteria and learned how to do photosynthesis that gave life to all the plants on earth that then gave life to all of the insects the insects that started to fly and the insects that that evolved into moths that flew at night and then the bats that ate the moths that forced some of them to start flying in the day and then the beautiful colors they grew and all of that that happened over billions and billions of years and we run the risk in our lifetime of entirely wiping out not just individual species within the butterfly but butterflies in general could be something that are consigned to the history books and we would all be worse off for it that's it i'm going to stop preaching i don't have the answers if you do please contact me we'll we'll use this platform to talk about it i'm going to share some of these links on twitter i hope i've made you think i hope i've entertained you a bit as well ultimately this is meant to be entertainment things that i find interesting this is uncredible adventures i'm cornelius thank you so much for listening in can catch me on Twitter. My handle is at UncrediblePod. Thank you. <music>